the Crime Wire Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode two of the Crime Wire Podcast. I am Damon. I am Jake. And we are editors at thecrimewire.com, which is a crime writing community. We invite authors to submit articles for possible publication on the website. And speaking of Jake, one thing you should know is that Jake is an, a true crime author. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about his book and then more extensively about the case that the book is about. You're talking about the Lisa Lamb case at the hotel. At the hotel. Is it the Cecil Hotel, right? Yep. So let me uh, start this by asking, like, what, like, tell me what you, what impressions come into your head? Like, when you think about this case, like, how do you know this case? Like, when people say this case, like, what comes into your head? Very directly from working for the crimewire.com. I believe that an article, there's at least one, and I believe you have an article on there too about the hotel in general, and then I think it touches on this case, but there's one specific article about Elisa, I believe. And that's when I first got introduced to it. I believe I edited the article at one point. My takeaway from it was it was it was obviously very odd and 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 tragic. Um I didn't get the we can get into this later as we sort of cover more of the details and stuff. But my takeaway was I didn't get the sensation behind it because there seemed to be some very obvious things that uh, were going on there with her behavior. And and so I want to talk about that later. But that's my, my initial reaction was weird, tragic. You mean, you, mean uh, you don't – the kind of uh, stigma that's been built up around the case, like the mysterious aura of it, you, you don't get that? Yeah, as if there's some sort of conspiracy or some supernatural explanation or something like that. Right, it just, right. It did, that just did not ring true at all. I love those kind of juicy little stories if there's something plausible behind them. But that was just that wasn't making any sense to me. Why? And I know that pe- that's what people do online. They love to get into these speculations about things. But it just was. It didn't make any sense. And, and I'll explain why I feel that way later. But I want to get the story out to people so they know what we're talking about. Right. Well, I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of like the way the case has been covered. There's been a lot of you know, conspiracy theories and yeah, paranormal ghost stories. And the reason for that, of course, is, you know, I, I spent like a lot of time researching the hotel where she stayed and what happened to her. And, and when I really started researching her, the person, Lisa Lamb, it, it changed the way I looked at the case because yes, beforehand, I saw this surveillance footage, which we'll get into, and it was spooky, and I was, you know, kind of disturbed by the whole thing. And then I learned the history of the hotel, and I was like, oh my God, you know, what what happened here? And then you hear of the aftermath, and you're like, how could this possibly happen? Like, how could could she have ended up where she ended up uh, without anyone knowing how? And so I think in the vacuum of facts and certain truth, certainty, like I think people as a kind of defense mechanism, they try to piece the patterns together. It's a, it's a, you know, our brains naturally try to find patterns, even if they don't make sense sometimes. And so I think with cases like, like this one in which there is no definitive answer, we think we kind of know probably maybe what happened, but not even that. It, and we just don't know. But yeah, I think the way I approached this case primarily when I started writing about it was 
through her eyes because I, I, you know, I found out that she had written a lot online, written a lot of blogs. Um, and in fact, she, um, she came to view the internet and blogging and social media as a, a kind of a therapy. She was a pretty reclusive person and she was struggling at the time. She was 21. She was living in British Columbia and she had been going to university uh, British Columbia, and she had stopped going because she was having having some problems concentrating. She was very intelligent, very good writer, and but you know, like a lot of people, it, uh, college can be hard. Concentrating can be hard. I can identify with that. And then, as as, as time went on, she realized uh, that that you know she had some very serious, repetitive, dark thoughts and and, and depression and. Uh, was ultimately diagnosed with bipolar disorder and uh, took medicine for that for some time. And she documented all of her experiences like this uh, online uh, pretty transparently. And at the time, you know, she didn't have like a big following or anything. She had a few people that she kept up with online. And she talked about depression and her mania you know, when she was having an episode uh, of mania from her bipolar or hypomania, and she would write about it. And so, you know, I got kind of fascinated with these posts. And only afterward did I realize uh, that posthumously, you know, after she had died, and after this case became very viral online, a lot of people had, had gravitated to the blog. And now they had left comments underneath her post talking about uh, their experiences with depression and bipolar disorder. So the case, you know, by proxy of this mystery, it became kind of like a community of not only trying to figure out who Elisa was, but what happened with her. And um, that was the angle I took to get in on it. And it was, it, it changed the way I look at it, but, and, and it makes a lot of the facts of the case a little clearer, but but no less mysterious and no less tragic. But I guess maybe we should start with why she was there. Why was she at the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles? And she had taken a solo trip. She wrote about it in her on her Tumblr page. Tumblr was her social media venue of choice, and um, she really documented a lot of her stuff there. Uh, strangely and unfortunately, she she stops posting once she gets to Los Angeles. We only really have one post of her from Los Angeles, and she's describing the Cecil Hotel as something like out of Great Gatsby. She really liked the Great Gatsby book. And so she was, you know, describing the hotel when she first showed up. But uh, after that, I think it's probably because she didn't have good internet access you know, unfortunately, we don't get much else. You know, originally, this was just going to be a solo trip that she was going to take. And she thought this was going to be something that was going to help her break out of this kind of negative spiral that she had fallen into. You know, a lot of people take trips like that when they're 21. People do it all the time. And it's safe. And and nothing goes wrong, you know. But what happened was that, you know, she didn't know LA very well. Obviously, and most people who come to LA, they think, "Oh, I'll just go anywhere, and I'll be near the beach and all of the things that I, the icons I associate with LA, and it'll be an adventure." But once you get there, you realize it's a very huge area. Everything's very separated. 
you know, the hotel where she was staying is, you know, probably two hours, two hour drive from the beach, realistically. Um, and she stayed at, you know, on Main Street, a place that uh, has, has gradually become right next to Skid Row, like the largest outdoor concentration of, of homeless population in the country is right next to this hotel. I've been there several times while I lived in LA and then even coming back and visiting to, to research. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a pretty fascinating experience to see how uh, the owners of the hotel, who, which has changed many times over the year, they're still trying to monetize this space, try to figure out a way to gentrify this area that is proved impregnable to that kind of influence just because there's so much um, there's so much crime and homelessness down there right now. And back at that time, too, this was back in 2011. Elisa was uh, 2013. 13, yeah. Sorry, I'm mixing it up with the Jameson case. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So we have her, we have uh, Elisa Lamb uh, kind of on this solo trip by herself and her itinerary for her West Coast tour. She was going to start in San Diego. That's where she started. She wrote about some of her experiences there, quite humorously at times. She had kind of an existential, sarcastic twist to things. And she had mentioned stopping in L.A., but we, we don't really know why she stopped there. It's one of the mysteries of the case. And as well as who she traveled there with, because she lost a phone, borrowed a phone. And then what seems to have happened is that she arrived in Los Angeles probably by bus or something like that. And she ended up rooming with what's been described as, as two or three other women that lived in a room at the Cecil Hotel, which is a, you know, it's a place where a lot of people stay because it's, it was relatively cheap in the area. Was it sort of a hostel at the time? Is that why she had to room with other, other people? So at the time, the Cecil Hotel was rebranding a little bit they kind of tried to rename it Stay on Main and they wanted to try and tap into like, yeah, a, a sort of hostile like environment where, where people could stay cheaply, you know, to an extent the hotel has profited a little bit from dark tourism with the way the hotel has been kind of depicted over the year, the, the stories, the legacy, the mythology that's been built up around the hotel and I researched it and, and I, you know, would go back and find the original newspaper clippings, well, at least the electronic versions of them, to, to like prove that these deaths actually happened. Like the, the long history of deaths and suicides and murders at the hotel, the Cecil Hotel, uh, which opened in 1931 and was originally going to be this very luxurious top of the line hotel. Uh, before the you know Great Depression happened, and then, like everything else, it fell into disrepair, and it became kind of a locus for where strange things would happen, bad things, and a lot of uh, a string of people began killing themselves at the hotel. Quite a few of them would jump out of the windows, um, you know, and and I go into gruesome detail in the book uh, of the people and what they did. I don't want to get too much into it here because it's, yeah, it's just gruesome, like I said. <laughs> anyway, but this, this hotel has a long history of really terrible things happening there. And two different serial killers live there, you know, 
Richard Ramirez and then Jack Unterweger. Uh, and, and, and both had stayed there at a certain point while they were killing people. So there's just, you know, if there, if ever there's a place where there is some bad energy, it would be that place, you know. I'd, I'd be curious to know what the suicide rates are at other hotels compared to the Cecil. Uh, you know, it is odd that, that these sort of like, did, isn't there a Black Dahlia connection to this hotel? Too? Not really. She she was killed close to the area. There was a rumor that she went there the night she died. But I think that's been largely debunked. Um, okay, got it. But yeah, I mean, you make a good point, which is that, you know, if you look up any hotel, any building, really, there's a fairly good chance that a number of people have died there, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Write for the CrimeWire. Email crimewireteam at gmail.com for more information. So let's get into how the case actually went down. Okay, so she's on a quasi-vacation on the West Coast from, she lives originally in Canada, and she's sort of trying to do this journey of self-realization or something. Maybe not that lofty, but at least it's like what a lot of young people do. And so she's now hit San Diego, and now she's in LA working her way north up the West Coast. So there you go. Yeah, but she's just, she stays there, and we don't know why she stays there so long. But It was a good six days or so, right? Yeah, about that. I know, I think I was actually maybe less like a few few days five days but that's a good question it's one of the mysteries actually is what she was doing there that whole time because we don't know she didn't document it and um but what we do know is what the manager amy price said which is that uh elisa so she was originally living in a room there with these women, probably women that she had come there with, maybe maybe friends that she met on the trip and was like, hey, oh, we're going there too. Let's share a room, you know, something like that. But at some point, the friends began to complain to the manager, tell the manager that Elisa was acting very strange, you know, just making them feel uncomfortable. And we know now that she was very likely exhibiting symptoms of, you know, rapid cycling or, or hypomania. Her bipolar disorder was... At that point, unmedicated, she was not on her, her her normal meds. We know that. A mood stabilizer and then Lamotrigine, which is a bipolar medication. They were not in her system, period. So it was almost certain that she was, the, all of the behavior that subsequently was attributed to her is, is a result of that and should be viewed through that lens because it's just a certainty almost based on what she's written and what we know was in and not in her system, that she was probably having a mixed episode. And I say this because I know the illness pretty well because I have it as well, a version of it, a bipolar 2, and it runs in my family to an extent. My aunt had it as well. And so I've, I've put a lot of thought into this illness, and I'm certain that that's what was happening. So she was moved into another room, a solo room. That's what the manager said. And at some point, we know that she got into the elevator. And that's the scene that you probably associate with the case where, like you said, people like to tell ghost stories. And so they're like, you know, is she possessed? It's like, no, it's it's psychomotor agitation. It's a very common thing that happens when people are, you know, experiencing episodes like that, uh, as well as paranoia, delusions, even hallucinations at times. 
Can I interject here? That was what I was going to mention, which I mentioned earlier. I was I wanted to get to, which was, as you stated, Skid Row is about a block away from from this, and I'm I'm where I'm sitting right now. I'm about less than ten miles away from uh, the the Cecil Hotel, and you know, having lived in Los Angeles for decades myself, that type of behavior that she was exhibiting, which was the sort of weird hand movements and and the paranoia, like peeking out of the elevator and then rushing in back in and out of it. That's just behavior you see in mentally unwell homeless people all the time. And I'm not marginalizing it. You know, I'm just saying it seemed to me like, why is everyone ascribing all of these other weird kind of like bizarre theories to this when it's, she's plainly having a a mental health episode, you know? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's not mutually exclusive and this is a point I'll just make now and then we can return to it, which is that the reason I, I made such a clear point of, of the bipolar side of it is not to say that she didn't necessarily have a reason to be scared. The reality is people who have mental illness, especially people who are exhibiting the symptoms of mental illness, tend to more likely be the victims of crime. Predators will zone in on them. People will try and take advantage of people who are having mental illness problems. And we know that there were reports of, of security guards there who made people feel very uncomfortable. And we simply don't know whether she had a reason to be scared or not. All we know is that she ended up on the roof at some point. Can I interject another question? Yeah. You may know about this. So the famous elevator sequence, everybody knows, is sort of like the troubling version of what she was dealing with mentally. I think if you rewind a day or so, there's a bookstore clerk that tells a story, and I'm sure you know about this, mm-hmm. about how she was very gregarious and and sort of interesting to talk to and, and curious, not only with the staff of the bookstore, but also other customers asking them about book recommendations and stuff like that. Very friendly and, and bubbly almost. Was that another manifestation, do you think? So I know who you're talking about. I didn't talk to her, but I talked to another guy. He was very credible. He was in the bookstore that same day as well. And he was one of the people Elisa talked to. And he had a very different experience. He felt like disturbed by her behavior. Yes, she was asking questions and being friendly because she was a friendly person. But he had the distinct impression that she was not doing well as well. Mm. And um, I, I think that's just a reality of what was happening is that she was in a very bad mental state in a very bad place to be in a bad mental state. And it's, it's when those two kind of worlds collide, you know, bad things happen. Uh, mm. And, and, you know, we're not sure exactly how she got on the roof, but based on people I talked to at the police department and other places, the coroner, the deputy coroner, said the detectives were pretty sure that someone let her on the roof. The hotel confirmed, the manager confirmed, that the security apparatus on the door, the alarm system on the door to the roof, was working. But it wasn't triggered at any point. So there's only two ways she could have gotten on the roof at that point. She could have gone through the fire exit, which is possible. She could have gone through the fire exit and climbed the ladder scaffolding on the side of the building up there. Or... Someone let her on the roof. Someone disabled the security door. Someone could have disabled the security door and let her on there. Or I, I spoke to people who lived at the hotel for a while who said that people were regularly on the roof. So it wouldn't surprise me if they had manufactured a jerry-rigged a easy system for, you know, you put a card in, in the slot so that it doesn't lock. You know, there's ways to 
get around that stuff, especially with some of the more uh, rudimentary security systems. And that kind of stuff happens all the time. Uh, so it, it could have been that. But if that's the case, if it's so regular, people if people are so regularly up there that they that, that she was able to easily bypass the system, that kind of negates this narrative that she was completely alone up there. And to be clear, I, I don't have any evidence for sure that someone was up there, much less that they killed her and put her in the water tank. And um, I guess that's a spoiler alert, actually. <laughs> Anyone who sees her name, you know, or the name of the hotel knows exactly what we're talking about. I'm assuming you didn't spoil that for anybody. But let's backtrack a little bit because, okay, so now she's about to leave. It sounds like she's about to leave LA the next day to go to Santa Barbara or Santa Cruz or something. Yeah, she was headed to Santa Cruz. And okay. at that point, she stopped communicating with her parents. Which was very odd because she had been in touch daily with them. Yeah. And then the uh, elevator incident happens, right? In that period when she's not in contact with them? Or, or- well, no, 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 no. After she was missing, the police looked at the security footage and they released that to a journalist who put it out on YouTube. That video was recorded. That was the night she disappeared, probably pretty shortly before she disappeared. I think they were saying that was the night of. Okay, so that yeah, I guess that was my question. Not when we as the public saw the video, but the night those incidents happened was when she stopped contacting everyone and was probably off her, her meds at that point. Yeah. All right, so then now you've you've sort of teased it, and I guess we can say what happened in the hotel. I guess she was a, a missing person, and maybe even her relatives flew in from Canada? Yeah, her parents flew in, yeah. And um, they were searching the hotel for days, and... This is another thing that really confuses me and is pretty mysterious. It's just very hard for me to understand why it took so long for them to find her. They took a canine team up to the roof and and, and they didn't find her. Or any scent of her, right? Meaning right. from what I've read or come to realize from doing other cases, other articles, I should say, when they bring dogs out looking for people, if it rains or if they hit a, a river or a stream or something, the dogs will just lose the scent. So the fact that she was now in water, they wouldn't find her necessarily, but they may, may find her scent somewhere on the roof, correct? Right. Well, the tracking dogs, the live scent tracking dogs, they're looking for trace particles, raft particles that fall from people. Raft par- particles are constantly falling off of us and they leave a trail. And it didn't rain. And so those raft particles should have been there. And I don't understand why the dogs didn't get them. It, part of me thinks it's possible she wasn't in the tank yet at that point. Mm. And that's just a theory. It's speculation. It's also strange to me that no one at the hotel told the police the possibility of her being on the roof. I find that very strange. It, I, it just doesn't make sense, to be honest with you. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that lead me to, to question what happened. But, you know, it, it took a long time for them to find her body. And finally, they, it happened almost through accident. Um, what happened was uh, the hotel guests started complaining about the water because the water in the hotel was like, weird dark particulate in it and dark water it had weird gross stuff in it discolored and uh, not to mention there's a water pressure issues as well right water pressure issues and um so eventually the the maintenance worker went up there to check if there was like blockages in in the water cisterns on the roof of the hotel and that's when he found elisa's body and she was naked and dead in the water her clothes were in the tank with her 
with her card and stuff. So it's it's really just it's it's so sad. Yeah, because you can't tell if there was another person with her and maybe she was assaulted and her clothes were taken off and then they were thrown into the tank with her or which part of her episode she took off her own clothes, right? That's possible. It's it's possible she climbed in there in in this hypomanic state and you know, people yeah, they'll go skinny dipping in strange places sometimes, especially if you're alone in a strange place and and feeling bizarre, you know? Uh and and maybe she got in and realized she couldn't get back out, which is a a chilling thought to think that she was in there for a long time, you know. Yeah, cognizant of her situation. Right. It, it, I mean, that's to me in some ways it's just as terrifying uh as as any kind of like murder scenario, but I I guess it it is more merciful than her so you know i hate to think that she was like hiding from someone who was you know trying to harm her Hmm. or maybe she in her mind someone was coming for her or maybe it was a mixture maybe some guy there had given her a strange look or maybe followed her around some corridors happens all the time or maybe someone was trying to help her and she uh, misinterpreted as someone who's stalking her or something sure could have been something like that and then miscommunication she you know hits her head they put her in the tank but i mean the coroner didn't find any evidence of foul play that that brings us to a new chapter of the thing so before we get into that i want to remind people to a go check out jake's book gone at midnight the tragic true story behind the unsolved internet sensation all about the case of Elisa Lamb. And also, we are editors of thecrimewire.com, and we are always looking for authors who write articles. Uh, you know, like I said, there's a Elisa Lamb article on The Crime Wire, which is where I first heard about it. And uh, there are many stories to tell out there, and we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email at crimewireteam at gmail.com, and we'll talk you through the process. The Crime Wire. Solving crime, one article at a time. Okay, so they found her body, and there's an investigation. Give me sort of like the the bullet point version of what the investigation entailed, and also what their final determination was. I can do an easy bullet point, because there's pretty much no points to put in bullet form, because there was just no investigation really i think they interviewed some people uh, presumably they interviewed some people at the hotel and that's it because they did not conduct a a, a rape kit on her what was their reasoning for that i think their reasoning was it was kind of some a circular reasoning that went on between the lapd and the coroner's department because in la they're they're separated they're different departments but i think that there was some it's like a tautology. They used each other as sources. So the coroner said that there was no evidence of foul play. That determination was also influenced in the report by them saying the investigation found no evidence of foul play. And then the investigators would then reference the autopsy and say the autopsy found no evidence of foul play. But the reality is foul play can be involved without showing clear signs, for one. And we don't know what happened during that whole period of time and nothing in the investigation answered it. They didn't answer anything. They speculated as to how she got in the tank. They did not release any information about 
anyone at the hotel who had encounters with her besides just what we learned from the manager. We don't know critical things such as whether the lid was actually open or closed when Santiago found her, which is very important. It would have been almost impossible for her to have closed it over her. So if it was closed, that would be very indicative of foul play. Whereas if it's open, it lends itself to her just climbing in on her own. But I spoke with this independent coroner. He works for private companies, but he's you know licensed. He's worked for the state. You know, Doctor Hizero was his name. Based on the autopsy he looked at, it, it doesn't even really look like she drowned to him. He said that there's not enough water, virtually no water in her lungs or stomach, and that a lot of the signs that are usually there when people drown, such as damage to certain uh, areas of your sinuses and certain parts of your bones in your face, that, that it just didn't look to him like she drowned. And so he, he questions that. So it's not, it's not you know, unanimous that she drowned. And it's, it's not unanimous that there was no foul play. The police just basically ended their investigation saying, we can't find any evidence that anything happened except she climbed in there and drowned. But, you know, there's just a lot of, of gray area there that we don't know about. And there are a lot of cases where people find out that a case, it, it kind of looks like someone was not a victim of foul play. And then you find out later the circumstances were different. And, you know, for example, they didn't do drug tests on her. We don't know for sure that certain drugs were not in her system. The basic screening they do only tests like certain major drugs. And then after that, if you want to find out about other drugs, for example, uh, date rape drugs, the family has to pay for it, mm. which seems very almost vindictive to me, but it's strange. But yeah, I think the uh, the biggest flaw in their investigation is definitely that they did not conduct a rape kit. And I, I talked to the, the coroner's department told me that they gathered the materials that would be, have been necessary for a rape kit, but did not conduct the rape kit. Do you think there's a point where they, the investigators slash coroner just heard the news that she was quote off her meds and just went, Oh, it's just one of those, especially the proximity of Skid Row. They probably see this stuff all the time and they probably went, Oh, she just had an episode and drowned. What, what are you going to do? I mean, it almost sounds like it's that flippant. It's not every day you find a woman's body in a water tank like that. And you would think that like there's at least a 50% chance <laughs> from from our discussion that some something could have happened that involved another person. So do you think they just sort of went, meh, this is another kind of like in their estimation. I'm not saying this, but another crazy person, quote unquote, who just lost it and, you know. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely think that they wrote her off because of that. Yeah, they heard from the parents that she had taken meds. They they spoke to people that said she was acting strange and the surveillance tape, which to be honest, like they really didn't even need to release that. The point of, of releasing a tape like that would either be to for the public to identify the victim or the perpetrator, but there's no one else in it except her. And the footage is, you can't really identify her from that. And what what does the footage accomplish, really, except it showed her acting very strange, and it kind of, yeah, it gave them, they, they shaped this narrative that this is definitely what happened because of her mental illness. And I can tell you that I, I spoke to the chief psychologist at the LAPD, and I asked him, did those detectives consult with you about this case? 
about the fact that she had bipolar. And they said, no, none, not at all. So like, here they are blaming purely just mental illness on this and not even keeping open the possibility that something else happened. And they really don't even know anything about the mental illness at all or, or what would be symptoms of it, what would not be symptoms of it. I definitely think that they stigmatize her and that's very common in law enforcement. Yeah, they're not trained to understand mental illness at all. And uh, I think you're absolutely right on that. Hmm. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I mean, for all we know, had they done the investigation properly, either route ends up at the same place with Elisa in the water tank. But they just left one investigative route completely unsearched. <laughs> so that's the weird part, you know? And in such a big case, a case that went so viral and that everyone was looking at, it seems so bizarre to me. It just seems coincidental that not only are they being super secretive about what, what information is released, but all of the information they release just supports their conclusion, and they didn't even seem to conduct an investigation. I, it doesn't really seem to me like there was a foul play investigation. Like I researched the two main detectives that worked on this case. I, I, I didn't get to interview them. They didn't want to talk to me. They blocked me on Twitter. And I was being really polite, too, like to a fault. But Wallace Tennille was one of them. And the other one was Greg Stearns. And Greg Stearns was involved in the Terry Rasmussen case and uh, the interrogation of Stephanie Lazarus Mm. in that case. And so these, these are, you know, hardened detectives who have seen a lot. They know, presumably know what goes into a murder investigation. But a lot of times in, in these cases, if there's so little evidence for them to work with that they just know that there is zero chance that anything they bring to a prosecutor is going to bring charges, there's probably times that, yeah, they just give up. And there's uh, in, in the book I wrote, during that time, they released data showing that the, the LAPD were underreporting murders during that time under-reporting murders. So is it possible that they just were like, hey, this is a weird case. Something strange happened to her, but we don't know. And and we have an out. Yeah, we have an out and it fits what we're already doing, which is trying to reduce the, the, the murder numbers in, in LA County. You know, and there's all kinds of weird other things involved, man. The hotel was acquired. A huge partnership was going down right during this period of time where the Cecil Hotel was being acquired as part of a a real estate firm, a huge one. Uh, I write about it in the book, CBRE, I think was the name of the firm. This was, you're talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars involved here. And it was finalized, like literally in the time period where she was missing. You can't make this stuff up. Some of this, it's so weird. And so, you know, it's just one of those cases that, that breeds a lot of conspiracies just because of the weird nature of things in it. And we've only addressed, you know, a fraction of them here. But it became an Internet sensation, I think, because it taps into so many different currents of culture simultaneously. One is, is this experience of mental illness people are having where they still feel disconnected from people and, and unable to talk about it. And so this case kind of catalyzed that. And also the system isn't set up to deal with people like that. Absolutely. Sure. And that's definitely the the truth. And 
you know, on the internet, it's also this kind of little cottage industry of, of yeah, conspiracy videos. It feeds that little algorithm. And so, you know, Elisa, she, she was, she used the internet to help herself, but she was also scared of it. And it, it, it's kind of a, a grim, morbid irony, I think, in the end that she ended up being kind of immortalized on the internet as this kind of viral horror meme when, you know, it was kind of her worst nightmare. Uh, and so I think if, if nothing else to take from this case, you know, is to look up her blogs, read more about her. And because that's the tragedy here is that she didn't get, didn't get a chance to reach her potential and come out of this dark period she was in. It's, it's sad. It's a tragic story ultimately, but it's, it's one that is, is captured a lot of people's pension over the years. And I, I think it's, you know, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Speaking of interest in this case, as I was looking into it a little more for today's podcast episode, I watched the trailer for that Netflix, which I've never seen the, the series, the docuseries that they made. Um, I, I guess it was quite popular. And then I was even intrigued by it based on this, this, because this is a very mysterious, intriguing case. And so then you tell me your thoughts about the, the Netflix series. Did you watch the whole thing? So no, I didn't. Um, I, I didn't watch that much of it, actually. Uh, first of all, so the director of that series, Joel Berlinger, he directed one of his first movies was, in my opinion, one of the best true crime documentaries ever made. It's called Paradise Lost. And it's about the West Memphis three boys. And when I was growing up, that documentary was just mesmerized me. And I, he, you know, that's kind of where he got his start. And then he became a very big director. He did the Blair Witch sequel. So I, I think he applied a, a certain kind of aesthetic to it. And, you know, he, he tried to take an innovative approach. He tried to be a little subversive in that the show was called Crime Scene. And he ultimately concluded that, you know, he didn't think there was any crime, which it could very well be true. But my problem with that conclusion is that the corollary is if, if there wasn't a crime, then it was all about her state of mind and her mental illness. But it, it didn't seem like he really covered that much of it in terms of that angle of it, uh, the, the psychology, her psychology. And, and furthermore, it doesn't seem to me that he really conducted an investigation and turned up much new information at all. He had a couple of good interviews in there. But he didn't interview any of the main detectives, and we didn't learn anything new about the investigation, anything. And so my problem with it is, is, is that we didn't really learn anything new about it. And then he kind of ignored the, the mental health angle. And he wanted to interview me for it. He wanted me to be in it because they knew I was writing the book at the time. And so they knew that I had researched it more than anyone. And they seriously really came at me hard to be in it. And... I just didn't want to. And did you know at the time that, that it was sort of like a surface exploration and you didn't want any part of it? I had a feeling it was going to be like that. And a guy I know, John Lorden, who I interviewed for it, and I've been on his podcast. He does a great YouTube channel called uh, Brain Scratch and where he talks about true crime cases. So he was in it and he was interviewed and he ended up being pretty upset about it because what Berlinger did apparently is he kind of he kind of made it the main angle just like kind of how obsessive and crazy all the web sleuths are which is you know there are some cases obviously where web sleuths just really 
just go off the deep end. But there's a, another side to that. And I think John is part of that. And so John really kind of felt like not only had Berlinger not really delivered in terms of like providing some new insight into the case, but the, he'd also kind of taken an un- unnecessary shot at the web sleuth community. And so, yeah, those are my thoughts essentially on the Netflix series on the case. Uh, but go watch it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anything else you want to, any sort of takeaways about this case or they're never going to do an, a deep dive investigation into this, are they? Seems unlikely. Very unlikely. I mean, in, someone would have to come forward with some new claim, some big new information. and I don't see that happening at this point, but you never know. It could. Seems like the families dropped. Uh, they had a lawsuit against the hotel for a while, which I, I believe got dismissed by the Superior Court. Yeah, it got dismissed before. Unfortunately, it was dismissed before they even had to do discovery. Very unfortunate because that would have been our one shot at getting some the actual police notes from the case. Mm. But when the judge dismissed it, that was the end of that. And so, could that be considered another kind of part of the legal system uh, covering for each other? Possibly. I, I think it's pretty strange to not even let the case go forward. I think they definitely had a case. I think the jury should have decided that one for sure. The explanation I heard that the conclusion the court came to was that there was no way that the hotel could have known that was going to happen. I guess in these liability cases, if it was preventable, then that, that means the entity getting sued would be liable, right? Right. I, I And I get that. And the burden of proof is different in civil cases. But I'm not saying that there should have definitely been a judgment against the Cecil Hotel. I'm saying let the case be heard. Like the judge dismissed the case without even hearing arguments or doing discovery. And it's just unfortunate for the purposes of learning more about the case. But Mm. it's unfortunate also because it's, it's very tragic for the family. You know, when you think about it, like not only did they lose a daughter, which is just incomprehensible, but to have the circumstances of her death and her life and her face, you know, blown up on the internet as a part of this story and to have everyone asking you questions about it, it must have just been a nightmare because of that. And I don't blame them for not wanting to talk about the case. And it's, I just, I hope that they can find some peace and I hope everyone's leaving them alone at this point. I hope so too. It's a very tragic story for that, for the Lamb family. For sure. All right. Well, anything else, Dad? Because I thought we covered a lot here. I think uh, I think we it was a great overview, especially coming from you, the guy who wrote the—I mean, literally wrote the book on it. You know, I did write a book on it. Yeah, and I guess since it's the only one on the Elisa Land case, I guess it is the book on the it. book. But yeah, there's a—you know—there's a lot we don't know. It's kind of a Gonzo true crime book. If you want to learn about a case, you know, imagine you know, fear and loathing meets. Prozac Nation. <laughs> it, it's I definitely put a lot of time into it and a lot of investigation and there's a lot of history about LA and and that area. It's not it's fun to learn about. It's uh, in terms of the history of that area and the corporate structure of the hotel that I, I got a kick out of. Uh, and so you know there's some avenues that more avenues that people might be interested in. But uh, yeah, for now you know. It's there's the epilogue is yet to be written. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to to hearing that. So uh, let's sign off for this episode. What do you say? 
Yes, it is Friday, and it is time to stop working, Damon. Once and for all. Okay, well, uh, again, please submit your uh, proposals to thecrimewire.com, where we love to work with new authors. This is Damon and Jake from thecrimewire.com, and we're signing off the CrimeWire podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of thecrimewire.com.